like many of the Old Testament books, it's a it's an anonymous book. We don't know who the writer is. It's possible that it's one of the participants of the story. Um, one of the people in it that we're going to introduce, um, I, I think it could be him, um, but we don't know. Um, it takes place in a time period right after the Babylonian captivity um, when the Jews are exiled. And this takes place in a town called Susa, which is in the Persian, in the kingdom of Persia after the Babel, uh, Persians replaced the Babylonians in power. And so um, you see a lot of the, uh, the names that you hear about um, when you think about Persian rule and things like that. The king in this story is named Ahasuerus. Um, some of the translations call him Xerxes, which may be a name you're more familiar with in terms of history. Um, we're going to read out of the ESV this morning. If you're following along, hopefully that won't be too difficult for you to follow. Uh, but I like the translation a little better. So we're going to read out of that this morning. Let's talk about some of the people that we find. We mentioned this King Ahasuerus. It introduces him in chapter 1 when it says, In the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So the main thing I want us to understand about this guy is he had an ego. And like many of the kings and rulers that we read about in the Old Testament, uh, he was pretty proud of himself. So much so that he threw a party for 180 days. So he threw a party to, to show off his riches and how great he was and all these things. And he spent half a year doing it. And so he's, a, he's kind of a central character to this story, but he's somewhat of a passive character. And you'll see more of that as we go along too. He had a, a queen that's introduced in chapter 1 as well. Her name is Vashti. And she's not part of this story for very long because as part of this party, he, he calls for her. She's a very beautiful woman, and he calls for her to be essentially paraded in front of all the guests so they can see how beautiful his queen is. Well, she decides she's not interested in that, so she doesn't even show up, and it makes him mad. And so he essentially uh, divorces her or gets rid of her as queen or whatever word you want to use, but he consults his, you know, the people that are around him, and they, they essentially tell him to kick her out. And so he does just that. He never sees her again. He, he makes a decree that she's not allowed to be in his presence. Um, and it starts this search for a new queen. And that's how um, we come to find out about Esther. He sends for um, people to find the, the, the most beautiful women of the land and people that would be suitable for that role. In chapter 2, we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, who are this, kind of the central people uh, of this story. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among, among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So... You have cousins here, Mordecai and Esther. And Esther's parents died. Mordecai, Mordecai decided to look after her. And as you read through this, and you're going you're gonna to have to read this for yourself because we just don't, simply don't have time to read all these, um, all of the chapters of this book. But Mordecai was very devoted to Esther. He looked after her and he took care of her. We don't know the age difference, um, but he, it was very personal to him. And he took after her and watched over her. We read about after uh, Ahasuerus um, has this search carried out for all these, all these um, women 
Esther is one of them that shows up. So Mordecai, you know, brings her in front of the king. She's taken in and, and has her place with him. It says in chapter 2 and verse number 10 that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front, in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. As you can imagine, with the Jewish exile, it, it wasn't necessarily a popular thing to be a Jew. And in some cases, it, was, it caused trouble. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was comfortable, a comfortable way to live. And so he commanded Esther to, to not make it known that she was a Jew. And that's an important thing for us, and we'll find out more about that in, in the story as well. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set up the royal set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Uh, we don't have a lot of information about why he loved her more. It may have just been that she was more beautiful. Um, you know, it certainly called her beautiful, that she was good to look at, essentially, to the eyes. And so he, whatever the reason was, she won favor in his side. Now, we do read about some other things that happened that allow her to win favor. It talks about when she was taken in before the king that um, the virgins were allowed to essentially make a request of things that they needed, cosmetics and things like that that they needed. And she asked for nothing other than what they gave her. So she earned some respect because she had no um, request of the king or, or, you know, anything that would be deemed monetary or anything like that material. And so she started to, to earn respect as well. But, but he replaced Vashti with Esther. And so you have this Jewish girl that is now queen uh, of, a, of, a, of a Persian city. Very interesting. Now, you, we also read about Mordecai. Um, and his continued desire to look after Esther. And it talks about how he would walk in front of the gate of the harem so that he could check on Esther. And so he spends a lot of time sitting outside the king's castle um, so that he can watch over her. And we read about uh, an instance where uh, a couple of the eunuchs that are, that are in power with the king come, uh, are, are out by the gate where Mordecai is sitting, and they're talking about a plot where they intend to kill the king. And so Mordecai takes that opportunity and that information and gets it to Esther and allows Esther to go to the king with the information, and they do an investigation to see if that's real, and it's found out that those things are true. And it's an important turning point because it, it provides Esther some credibility with the king. And Mordecai's name is mentioned there as well, and so um, he, he's looked upon favorably as well for saving the king's life, essentially. Esther gains more influence through that scenario. And then the fourth person that we're going to talk about this morning is a man named Haman, who's introduced in chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded, had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So this man Haman had, you know, whatever acts he'd done, whatever things he did to impress the king had risen in power to essentially second in command. And 
he's a man as well who is full of pride, and so much so that the king made this decree that people should bow down to him whenever he walked by. And so he would walk by the gate, and Mordecai would not bow down to him. And, you know, we see essentially the pride start to really swell up in this guy just because of Mordecai here. So this leads to an event where Haman becomes frustrated and essentially plans a genocide of the Jews. In chapter 3 is when this occurs. It says, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And then in verse number 11 of that chapter, it says that the king, not caring what people do in the... uh, Excuse me, that's my note. It doesn't say that. My point was that the king doesn't care. And we read about that here um, with Haman, and we read about that with Esther as well. So anytime anybody comes before this king, he's just kind of like, okay, whatever. And the thing that's interesting to me about that is he just, he's so conceited, he doesn't even care. As long as people are kind of stroking his ego, he doesn't care what goes on. So he's given Haman all this power. Haman goes to him and, and, uh, tells him that he wants to wipe out the Jews, and he says, okay, the money is given to you, and the people also to do with it, it seems good to you. Whatever you want to do, it's kind of okay. You know, you're, you're taking care of the things I want you to take care of. Go, go do with what you please. And so you can imagine how Mordecai feels about this. He learns of this, you know, of what's going on. He, he gets some letters are drafted with the, the commands that the, the Jews are to be wiped out. And so Mordecai learns of that. It talks about how he presents himself in sackcloth and ashes and, um, you know, is just very distraught over what's going on. As you can imagine, the whole race is, you know, is being planned. Plans are being made to wipe out an entire race. You know, we read about all the various genocides in world history. We think about the things Jews went through with Hitler and that type of thing. It's the exact kind of thing going on here. And it's all because Mordecai wouldn't bow before him at the gate. And so they learn about this. Mordecai gets word to Esther that, you know, they, they need to discuss it. They need to talk about it. Um, Esther finds out about it. Mordecai says, look, you got to go to the king and, and deal with this. And Esther says, well, you know, I haven't been called. There's a custom where um, that you can't enter the king's court until he calls for you. And so she's very concerned about that. She said, I haven't been called. And he finally convinces her that, you know, that it's her place and her responsibility to take care of this. And so um, she goes before the king and asks him to attend a feast, you know, at her house, essentially. And uh, he grants her that wish. We're going to read more about that as well. But this genocide that's planned is essentially the rest of the book is spent talking about that. These next couple slides, um, there's a lot of reading. I, I kind of debated whether or not I wanted to actually read this or just paraphrase it, but we're going we're gonna to go through it real quick because it's important for us to understand the attitudes of a couple of these people. In chapter 5, uh, it talks about Haman going to his house. So there's, a, there's an event that occurs where the king is kind of sleepless one night, um, doesn't know what to do, so he commands that the chronicles or the history books be brought to him, and he's reading them, and he he reads about the he he rereads about the story where Mordecai tells him about the plot of the two people to kill him, and he says, "Hey, uh, you know who um, did we ever do anything to honor Mordecai?" And he actually says that to Haman, 
Um, and he says, no, he didn't. And so they essentially, they essentially honor Mordecai. Well, that just rubs Haman wrong again. And so here in chapter 5, Haman's back at his house talking to his family. He says, he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. So this feast that Esther invited the king to, she invited the king and Haman and nobody else. Haman's talking to his family about it, said, look, I'm such a big dog that even the queen has invited me to a feast with her and the king and nobody else. I get to go to this. So he's just really kind of, I mean, it's, it's on full display here. The pride's on full display. He says, and, and tomorrow, uh, also, I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and they had the gallows made. So all of this stuff that he was, is all the important roles that he had, all the things that he had done, the feasts that he had been invited to, these, he's saying these are all great, and they mean nothing to me while Mordecai's alive. So his anger burned him so bad that he couldn't care less about anything else until Mordecai was dead. So his friend said, let's build a deal and hang him, hang him from it. And so that's exactly what he plans to do. He has this thing built um, with all intentions of killing Mordecai. His arrogance is on full display here. I think I got my events backwards there. The the uh, the king the king wanting to honor uh, Mordecai happens after this verse we just read. So Haman's doing all these things, makes makes plans to hang him. Then the king calls Haman in and says, "Hey, let's honor uh, Mordecai." And so now he's kind of. The, the timing kind of gets tricky for him. You know, he wants to hang the guy. The king wants to honor the guy. And so it's very interesting, the timing of events. Chapter 6 uh, is when Haman come, comes in before the king. He says, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? This is the king talking to Haman. And then Haman said to himself, So he's the king asked him what he should do to honor a man. And Haman says, Well, he must be talking about me. He delights to himself. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one the king's, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus sh- proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So the king gives Haman essentially the decision with what are, what are they going to do to this man who he wants to honor. Haman's thinking that's going to be him, so he rattles off this list of all the great stuff that's going to happen to him. And so the king says, okay, let's do, let it all be done. Go get Mordecai and do this to him. So you can imagine how... Haman feels at this point. And so there's, there's a point in time where this is all gets really tricky. Haman wants to kill him. Mordecai is going to be honored. Esther invites them both to this feast so that she can try to deal with the situation. And the timing of these events all just gets kind of interesting to me. And when we talk about God not being mentioned here, I think it's fairly, 
fairly evident really quickly in the story that God's hands are all over this story. And it probably leads to an interesting discussion or a sermon on the providence of God. I, I don't know where and what he's directing specifically, but it's really hard for me to believe that he's not orchestrating these events. So the king and Haman went into a feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even the half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So Esther uses this influence that she built up to essentially save the Jews. And she, you know, Haman thinks he's coming here to be honored with this feast with her, and she essentially just reveals everything to the king. And she also at this time makes it known that she is a Jew, um, which, interestingly enough, the king didn't really have a problem with. Um, you know, I don't know if that's what the fear was originally, that the king would have a problem with that, but he seemed kind of indifferent about that. But Haman is outed here. And so we read, as the book starts to come to a close, one of the king's units in attendance says, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word save the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. So, man, you talk about an interesting circle of events. Haman has this hate in his heart. He builds this thing to, to kill Mordecai on. Esther reveals the plot. The king, Mordecai is already on the king's mind because he wants to honor him. And they, they stick Haman on this thing and kill him on that as well. And so... The Jews are essentially saved. The, the remaining chapters in this book are kind of spent talking about that. Esther tries to undo the written commands that the king had made, giving uh, Mordecai, uh, giving Haman the ability to, to slaughter the Jews. So they undo that. They spend some time essentially getting revenge for all the people that had, um, that had tried to kill the Jews. So the Jews are then given the ability to go out and destroy those people. And then... And then they establish a feast. There's a feast called the Feast of Purim that you read about here, which is essentially why the book is written to recount how that feast came about. And it's something that the Jews then celebrated on a yearly basis to celebrate this, these events where they escaped this genocide. And so they're spared from their enemies. Uh, Esther, you know, sits on this throne having done this great thing. Mordecai then gets honored by the king and becomes a powerful man um, for the king. And it's just a very interesting story. So what are the lessons learned? We, I mentioned earlier that this is a very self-contained book. Um, you know, when you think about how we, how we read some of these books and scriptures, we, we think about the, you know, some of the scriptures in the New Testament, how they reference the prophets or the, the old law or 
or give a give a specific command from God. You don't find that in this book. You don't find any of that. There's none of these references are there. They don't talk about any of the other prophets. There's nothing in here that that says God says don't do or don't do this. And so you have to kind of pull out whatever you can. And I think there's some powerful lessons for us to to get from this book. Number one is refusing to disobey God even when everybody else is or when it's unpopular. Or, and or, I guess, when there's potentially great personal costs. And I think about Mordecai, and we read about that in verse number 3 of chapter 3. It says, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? You know, he... He knew, he knew the traditions and the laws of his people. He knew the kind of person that Haman was, and he wasn't going to bow to him. And I think there's a really good lesson for us. And I think about the apostles that we read about in Acts chapter 5 when they're told um, not to continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And, and they said, we ought to obey God better, rather than men. And it's a good lesson for us. We can, we can learn from this. And Mordecai certainly um, displayed this, this kind of um, steadfastness to, to his people and to doing the right thing here. Number two is courage to do the unpopular. If you read about the account when, um, when Mordecai and Esther are having the conversation about her going before the king, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a tense conversation. Esther's pretty scared about this. She doesn't want to go before the king. She knows if she goes when she's not called, it could mean immediate execution. Uh, but Mordecai really challenges her to step up and take, take care of this and do her, you know, fulfill her role and do the things that she needs to do to save her people and his people. In uh, chapter 4, it says, Go gather, this is Esther speaking now, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she got to a point where she knew that she needed to do this. And she said, If it costs me my life, so be it. We're going to take care of this. Think about all the men and women that we read about in the scriptures that made similar decisions. You think about Noah preaching at a time when it was certainly unpopular and all the wickedness that was around him. You think about Daniel refusing to bow down and the the events that happened to him and King Darius when he was thrown into the lion's den. And we could just go on and on with all the different examples. But it's a really good lesson for us. Courage in a time when it's you know when it's when it's unpopular to do it. And I don't, we don't face situations like this that are life threatening. But we might in our lifetime. Our kids might in their lifetime. And I hope that each of us will follow this kind of courage and and have the same kind of courage. There's certainly a lesson in devotion and service when you when you read about the relationship that Mordecai and Esther had. You know it's it. It's even though they were cousins, it's, it was very much kind of a father-daughter relationship, and it started off with Mordecai, you know, really with this devotion to Esther, and and it kind of flips once she makes this decision that she needs to go to the king. It sort of flips where she's kind of directing things, and um, it's very interesting. But it's a it's a really good lesson in devotion and the courage that Esther displayed here. Number three, the lesson in pride and. I think that Haman's sole role in being in this story is for us to think about pride and, and how he dealt with things. He goes, we mentioned that he goes back to his family in chapter 6. It says, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. So after the king tells him they're going to honor Mordecai, you know, he's just 
torn up about it. And he goes home and he's telling his family about it. telling his family about everything that's happening, how Mordecai is being lifted up here. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So even his friends knew, you know, the situation that he was in wasn't good. And in his case, his pride led to a literal fall. I mean, he, he got hung because of it. But we see so many times throughout the Scriptures over and over again how pride is talked about and how it never leads to anything good. And I just think about here how if he would have just, he, essentially he would have just minded his own business. You know, this one guy ticked him off, this guy that was essentially powerless in this kingdom, but it, it consumed him. It consumed his thoughts and his life and his plans, and it ultimately led to his death. And that's certainly how pride is. Proverbs chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And James talks about pride too. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Chapter 4 and verse number 6. Humility is certainly something that was lacking in Haman's life. I think we learn a good lesson in patience here too. When you think about Mordecai and how he dealt with the situation, you know, he... It obviously was uncomfortable for him, certainly after the, the genocide was planned, but even before it wasn't super comfortable for him. You know, he spent his time at the gate trying to check on it, trying to check on Esther. Um, we don't know that Mordecai was looking for any kind of a reward here. I, I tend to think that his sole motive was just making sure Esther was okay. And then when the genocide was planned, obviously making sure the, the Jewish people were okay. But there's a good lesson in patience in rewards here. And as you think about the Christian life, it's so, it's, it's so much more of a marathon than it is a sprint. And we want so much for things to have an instant gratification, and, and it's not promised that way. And we think about the rewards that Christians are offered. We may never see them in our lifetime. And whether that's 40, 50, 60, 80, 90 years, whatever it is, you may never see that reward in your lifetime, but there's a reward promised. And Mordecai teaches us a, a really good lesson in patience here. You think about all the men and women uh, that you read about. You think about the children of Israel and the promises they continued to hear over and over and over in all those years and how Joshua and Caleb finally saw that promise fulfilled. You think about Paul and talking about fighting the good fight and the struggles of life, running the race of life, and how he finally finished that course. We can learn a really good lesson in patience here as well. I think it's important for us to recognize as well um, that God's will is going to be done with or without us. And that's kind of a harsh statement, but it's a fact. That doesn't mean that we're not important in that, but it's just a fact. And it's maybe the most important scriptures in this whole book are in verse 12 through 14 in chapter 4. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. So this is when Esther's saying, look, I'm... I'm struggling. I, if I go to the king, I might be killed. Uh, I don't know how this is going to end. And so this, this exchange goes back and forth a little bit. And so here's what Mordecai says to Esther. He told him to reply to her, Do not think of yourself. Do not, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So this decree has been made. Don't be foolish to think just because you're sitting in the palace. When they find out you're a Jew, you're going to be killed too. For if you keep silent as a time like this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Isn't that such an interesting statement and a question? You know, this may be exactly why you got put into power, Esther. And again, there's, there's an interesting lesson here on the providence of God. But maybe God put you in this exact place for this very reason. And I don't know if that's what ultimately convicted her to, to kind of take care of business, but he, he challenged her there. And it's interesting to me to consider the idea that there may be a defining moment in your life. Yep, God's will is going to happen with or without you. But there may be a decision or two decisions or three decisions that could be a defining moment in your life. You may run across one person in your life that you get one opportunity to make an impact on. You might get to make one or two or three choices that could impact the, the faith of your family for generations. And that's what he told her here. This is a, this is a defining moment. And, and how you deal with this is going to help, is going to impact the Jews big time. We shouldn't be arrogant enough to think that God's going to fail without us. But we should be willing to understand that he wants us to help do his will. And finally this morning, God is never far away. You know, it's, uh, as I said in the opening, it's fascinating to me that there's a book in the Bible that his name is never mentioned. But read through these, these chapters in this book and you, you see that, that his hand is all over everything here. And there's times in life where we feel like that, that God's far away from us, that things are going on in our life or we can't get our head above water. We don't know how to figure it out. We don't think we have the answers, but God is not far away. And you think about all the pain and struggle that the Jews dealt with in this story in a foreign kingdom where they were exiled to, where they were living under the rule of an ungodly people. And God's hand was in everything, and things worked out okay for them. And how Mordecai and Esther must have felt alone in this struggle for how to save the Jews, and yet it all worked out. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse number 6, Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And it's a good lesson for us to remember in those times in life when we don't feel like God's there for us. He's never going to leave us. And he demonstrated that to these people. He demonstrated that to Esther. He demonstrated it to Mordecai. The Jews flourished because of this. It, it talks about in those last couple of chapters how they, you know, essentially came back, you know, rose a little bit to power. It talks about how people were even claiming to be Jews when they weren't because of the fear of what was going to happen if they weren't. Everything had worked out so good for them. He's never far away. If you're here this morning and you have any need that the church can help with, Remember that God is not far away. Maybe you don't know God. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel. You need to take care of that this morning. And if you've studied that, you understand what that means and the need in your life. We want to offer an invitation for you this morning, the invitation of Jesus. And you think about God being far away. I think about the cross when he said, why have you forsaken me? And how he was willing, he was willing to take that moment of separation so that that we could not have to deal with this, so that we wouldn't be separated from God. And if there's anything that we can help you with, uh, we invite you to come and have a seat on the front as we sing the invitation song.